Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, reporter Michelle Rendells talks with Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno about the special session and her time as a former corrections officer after she gave a heartfelt speech on the assembly floor. After that, Riley talks with you, Joey, about what happened at the special session regarding a controversial bill on liability protections. And in lieu of having a fun final segment, we actually have a bonus episode of the podcast that we put out yesterday, in which reporter Michelle Rendells and I go over the mail-in ballot law, which changes how the state will approach voting during a state of emergency. We have a great discussion with Deputy Secretary of State for Elections, Wayne Thorley, on the topic, so go check that out on our site or wherever else you listen to podcasts. But before we get to the rest of our show, we wanted to give you the latest information on just where things stand regarding the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada. Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent, and she's been our go-to expert on all things coronavirus. As always, Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into anything else, let's start with the numbers. Now, noting that we're recording in the afternoon on Thursday, August 6th, what can you tell us about the data? Right. So as of right now, when we're recording, there are 53,563 coronavirus cases in Nevada. So these are individual people who've tested positive for for COVID-19. As of right now, that's 635 more than yesterday, which actually looking at recent data is not as many as we've seen. We've had quite a few, you know, thousand new case days. We've had a lot in the 700 and 800. So this is not quite as much as we've seen. On the other hand, uh, Washoe County is not yet reported today. So we'll probably, that number will probably go up a little bit by the end of the day. But in general, things are looking a little bit better than they have been in the last couple of weeks. We're still seeing a high number of cases reported each day, but we're not seeing the dramatic increases that we were a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Looking at the deaths, we're at 900 um, COVID-19 deaths. Uh, That's up nine from yesterday. A lot of those, as you can imagine, are are in Clark County. Um, And part of what we're seeing, if you look at the data, is we have seen a lot of deaths um, in recent days get reported, and we're tracking this as a seven-day average. Uh, and that number has been at a high point. Um, the important thing to note is that the deaths that we're seeing reported now are actually the result of uh, cases and infections that happened, um, according to the state, they say about five weeks ago. If you think about it, it takes a little bit of time to get infected, to get sick enough that you require going to the hospital and then the length of your hospitalization. So usually it's, it's kind of like a five week um, from when someone is infected to when they might pass away from the illness. So it's important to note that you know, we see a little bit of improvement with the case numbers, and we see these deaths going up at the same time, but that's because there's a lag there between those two numbers. Okay. Now, the state made a bit of a change in the way that it reports its testing data. Can you break that down? Sure. So the what you're talking about is what's known as test positivity. So the way that we calculate this on our data page is by looking at uh, the number of people who have tested positive and dividing that by the total number of people who've been tested. So we're dividing people by people. Uh, the other way of doing this is by looking at total tests that have come back positive and dividing that by total tests. Now, the reason those two numbers are different is because according to the state's data, about 80% of people take only have only taken one coronavirus test, but about 20% of people have actually taken two or mo- more COVID-19 tests. That could be they need to get tested for work, they had multiple exposures. There's a number of reasons that someone might get tested more than once, uh, but that's why you actually see a difference between 
those two numbers because you have a certain number of people who've gotten tested, but those people may have gotten tested more than once. So the state made a change this week um, to switch from the people divided by people model to the test divided by test model. The one benefit of that is you can better look at um, the number of positive tests that are coming back. So you might be able to see, okay, we have X number of people who are still testing positive or who have recently tested positive for the virus. Um, but in terms of looking at overall cases, it's, it's better to look at the, the people who've tested positive number because that tells you, you know, discrete human beings who've contracted the virus. You know, I've talked to folks who have tested positive three times. They keep testing positive for the virus, even though they've, you know, seemingly recovered from their symptoms. And so that's where um, it's sometimes hard maybe to look at multiple positives, uh, positive tests, and that kind of gives you a different view on the data than if you look at positive human beings. So that was the biggest change they made this week. They also uh, made a change with how they're reporting that data. So they've included a five-day lag time for their daily test positivity rate. And that's because they're trying to more accurately capture the day that people were tested. Um, previously, they would basically report you know, all the latest results they had come in, whether that was people who got tested five days ago or seven days ago or two days ago. It was just whatever the latest batch of results that had come in those were the results that got reported. Now they're trying to actually just report the results of tests from five days ago. So the people who got tested five days ago, that's the data that they're reporting. So that's the one um, biggest change that we saw in the state's data this week. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there for this week. Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent. And if you follow her on Twitter at Megan Messerly, she tweets daily updates about the coronavirus. Or you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where you can read all kinds of coronavirus data. Megan, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We're here today with Democratic Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno. Monroe Moreno gave a speech on the assembly floor on Tuesday evening after the assembly had passed a bill that repeals some portions of a law passed in 2019 that expanded protections for police. Um, And she had a lot to say as a person, uh, a black woman who is also a former law enforcement officer. She spent a long time as a correctional officer um, and has really a perspective that's pretty unique among the legislators. Um, So let's go ahead and play a clip of that speech. Um, my comments are in response to the, the vote we just took. I, too, in 2019 in this legislative body, voted for SB 242. And I voted for it because I, I saw it as a, a workers' protection bill. However, as many of us have received emails and calls and people showing up at my house to tell me some of the negative consequences that were associated with the bill that we passed, we heard it from a number of people in their comments today They did not comment in support of what we were doing. Their comments were against what we were doing because they said we didn't go far enough. And in some ways, I agree with them. But we're here today in a special session to address some things that are going on in our communities. And I've I've gotten calls from people that I worked with because I spent 28 years of my life in correctional law enforcement loved my career, respected the people that came into my custody because I knew that they were someone's child, mother or father, and I loved the men and women that I worked with. They are my sisters and brothers to this day, and I would put my life on the line for many of them. But I also understand that there were consequences in SB 242 that we did not intend. And as a legislative body, 
we have to admit when we make a mistake or when we find out that something that we pass needs to be corrected. And I think what we did today is make a step in that right direction. But we will be back here in just a few months. And for those of you that say we didn't go far enough and say that you were not listened to, that we didn't hear black and brown people, well, I'm a black woman that worked in law enforcement and was proud of it. But I'm also the mother of black and brown children. And I know that as a community, as a nation, as a state, we can do better. So I encourage my colleagues to continue working with me. And for the people that called in, our door's always been open. And a number of us in this body, at this end of the building, worked with you, sat down with you, and talked with you. And your feelings, your concerns, we heard you. We will address you. And for my sisters and brothers in blue that I've also talked to, I encourage you to continue working with us as we come back in the next legislative session. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Assemblywoman, you really talked about supporting SB 242 last time and then having a sort of change of heart and wanting to revisit that. Can you walk me through what you were feeling at the time and what happened in the year since that bill originally passed? So in 2019, um, one of the lobbyists from the police unions and so we just need to ask that we have SB 242 to strengthen protections for police officers. And some people were like, why do police officers need protections? I, I said, I can't tell you how many times I had an inmate make an allegation that I knew was not true. But then you have to defend yourself. And that could in involve expense of an attorney for the union that's representing you or a personal attorney for yourself. But just the stress that it takes on the officer and the officer's family. So what can we do to strengthen that? But then I, being in corrections for so many years, I saw supervisors who didn't always work in the best interest of their subordinates. And like it or not, police departments are a good old boy system. And if you're in with the click, you're in. And if you're not, you're not. Um, so how do I protect that worker too that's going to to the job and doing everything that the community expects them to do to serve and protect their community, but not oftentimes getting treated fairly on the workplace. How do I make that stronger for that person as well? So I, I supported the bill mm -hmm. in 2019, but in the interim, looking at the bill and, and talking to officers that were still working, ask, hey, why did you give us some of these protections? You know, we really don't need to see the file, the entire file that's against us before we go in. The guys we're arresting, they don't get to see that. That's something you didn't have to give us. Uh, you know what, you're right. So, so maybe if I get an opportunity, we'll go back in and make some changes to that. Because it is unfair for someone to see everyone's statement, every witness against them, and then that person can form their statement based on what they've already known instead of just the incident in hand. Mm -hmm. So I said, if I can't correct anything else, let's go back and fix that. But then jump forward, we have the incident that happened, Mr. Floyd, that just sparked something that's been going on in, in our communities nationwide for years. But this time it was just, look, we need to have a balanced approach to protect the citizens that we're supposed to be protecting, but also respect and protect the officers. And have a means that if an officer sees something that they feel 
comfortable and safe to say something. A lot of departments already have that in their rules and regulations and standard operating procedures, but not every department. And a number of those in the state of Nevada. So I was asked, well, why are you gonna make any changes if we don't have a problem here? But I feel our job as legislators is not to just be respond to an issue, but to look forward to what's gonna happen or what might happen in the next year or five years and make sure that we have universal guidelines for every police department throughout our state mm -hmm. moving forward. So that's why I felt making some adjustments to SB 242 was important, and it was important now at this time in our history. I've already gotten some texts from people that I worked with that were, thank you for saying it, and some were like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. I said, but the truth of the matter is I didn't do anything against police. I mean, I'm a firm supporter of, of police. That's, I still feel like I'm in part of the law enforcement family. But every occupation, no matter what it is, there can be improvements made. And and if we, we have to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, if there's a way that we can make improvements and changes, let's do that. Holding everyone accountable, both the law enforcement officers and the defendants that they come in contact with. You talked about your time as a correction officer and said people are filing complaints probably frequently. And this is not exactly criminal conduct. This is just alleging violations of policy. Is that right? For me, that's what it was. But, you know, and you also have, you know, I, you go in a community, if you're an officer that's active in your community, um, outside the job, you're going to see, because some of our cities are so small, some of the towns are so small, you're going to see those people in your grocery stores, your kids are going to go to school with their kids. So it might be an interaction in the jail or it could be an interaction in a grocery store. We had my my ex-husband and I, who's Hispanic, I'm black, we were in a grocery store late at night with our kids and we were being followed. The, the security officer in the store didn't know that we were in law enforcement, but we were black and brown people with our kids getting followed. And we laughed because there was this young white kid that we hadn't had in custody, who had his backpack and he was stealing. And I'm like, so you're following us just because of how we look. And you could call the police on us and we could find ourselves in in a mix. But you're missing the one guy that really is roughing you off because he doesn't fit the profile in your mind. And I'm hoping, I know this bill doesn't do it, but I'm hoping we can get past that where we profile people for an image that has either been put in our minds as, as children in schools or on the media, I don't know. But we get past that and just see people for who they are, both as police officers and as citizens. So. And then let's talk about SB 242. That bill has really come to the forefront, I feel, in the last couple of months. People become familiar with that bill. Uh, it's be kind of, become kind of one of the top things people are asking to be repealed. How did we get to that point? Has there been something happening in this intervening time beyond the Black Lives Matter protests that we've seen in the past couple months? No, I think there was a conversation even after you know leaving the building. There was a conversation from some groups that felt that SB 242 went too far for whatever reason they felt it went too far. And maybe it was their own personal interaction with, with a police officer or a specific police department. But I think there's been a larger conversation because of George Floyd. And, you know, for Metro's not perfect. North Las Vegas is not perfect. There's there's not a perfect police department. I don't think we'll ever have that, unfortunately. But I think that was just the 
the avenue or that spark to try to get it repealed. I know way, shape, form, or fashion feel we should repeal the Police Officers' Bill of Rights. I feel that it, we do need a Police Officers' Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. Will there need to be more discussion of parts of it that people want to, and, and tell me why they want to repeal it and what the reasonings are? But also have those people sit down with the police officers that are actually doing the job and not just come from an advocacy viewpoint without having the conversation with the other side of, of the issue because you're not going to get to a good policy if you don't do that mm -hmm. and and kind of burning down the house is not my approach to anything mm -hmm. so we heard a lot of passionate testimony really on both sides of the bill and i'm thinking back to the hearing for ab3 i think that was a saturday afternoon and you had the police officer saying we feel attacked and then you have so many other people saying this misconduct and brutality is happening and we need to do something. You know, it's sad that our it's sad that as a society we we do that. It it just takes a few bad apples to make everyone look bad. And that's in everything. You know, you have a teacher that gets an inappropriate behavior with a student and then all teachers are are looked at differently or a coach on a team that has inappropriate actions. It's we need to get past the the big brush and painting everyone with the same color. It's just, we have to get past that. And I hate that police feel attacked, but I think as police officers, we also have to understand that for too many years, a lot of police officers were allowed to get away with, with murder. I mean, they've gotten away with things. And it's like a child. You know, if, you're, if your kid can get away with something small, then that next time they'll, they'll get away with something a little bit bigger until it's like, oh my God, how did this happen? Not realizing that maybe if I stopped it in that first incident, that small incident, it wouldn't have progressed to this. And we have to admit that there's some bad people in our ranks and get rid of them because those bad people in the ranks makes the occupation as a whole look bad. And that's not fair to the men and women that put on that uniform every day, put their life on the line, and willing to die for their community. It's not fair to them. But oftentimes, those officers are afraid to speak out against the bad officers because of retali retaliation against them. And that's not right. So, yeah, I hate that some people, and there are, I'm not going to say there aren't some people that are truly wanting to go after police departments and get rid of them. And my answer then, then who's going to protect us? Mm -hmm. You know, then, then, then when we pick up the phone and call for help, who's going to come? Are there some things we need to do differently? Yes, there are, because a police department should not be our, our first line to address behavioral health care issues. If there's a mental health issue, I, I would like to see a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a social worker on the scene first. Mm -hmm. And then if they need police backup, have that working together collaboratively as a team. I'd like to see us move more in that direction. I would love to see our jails and prison systems not be our largest mental health facilities in the state. So do we need to maybe reallocate some funds and look at how we do things? Definitely, that's definite. But getting rid of police is not an option. It's just, it's in my book, I just don't feel it's an option. And I know there's a lot of people that would disagree with me, but no. I heard as part of your testimony yesterday, you said something along the lines of you loved your career as a correctional officer. Tell me a little more about that. I did. I And people think that's crazy. They're like, you like being in jail? And it wasn't that I liked being in jail. It was that not everyone in jail is a bad person. 
And there's a story behind every inmate that ends up in jail. And that story might have started in the foster care system, in a home that there was a mom who had a mental health issue or dad who was substance abuse issue or their parents were in jail. And at some point along the line, that kid didn't get what they needed. I had a woman in jail once who stole diapers and formula. Is she a criminal? Okay, she committed a crime, but it was a crime of necessity. So how can we help this mom take care of her children? Putting her in jail only exacerbates the problem in that household. So I loved what my, my job allowed me to do to help people get to a better place in life. We, we put together an after-school program because at one point I had a father, grandfather, and grandson in my jail at the same time. None of them had graduated high school. One of them could barely read and write. Like, how do we change the cycle? So I, along with other corrections officers and patrol officers, created an after-school program at, at one of the apartment complexes right in the heart of North Las Vegas. Totally free to anyone who wanted to come and be a part of it. We weren't teachers, nowhere near being teachers, but we partnered with students from Rancho that needed community service hours to help them tutor the kids in elementary school and adult education so the parents could get their GEDs if they didn't have it. But we did that as officers on our own time with the support of our chief at the time, encouraging the program and even putting his personal money into it to make sure that we had the tools that we needed for the students. So I love what my job allowed me to do in my community. But there were people that, that need to be in jail. They, they don't need to be on the streets. And I, I love the fact that I was able to help protect my community by keeping those people safe mm-hmm. and off the streets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When you look back on this session, which is about to conclude, how are you going to see bills like AB3? Some people said that police uniform measure didn't go far enough. Some others say that it painted police in the same broad brush. How are you going to look at it? I look at it, you know, legislation is, it's stepping stones. There's not going to be one piece of legislation that's going to fix every problem that we have. So I see AB3 as a great start to the conversation. It does enact changes that we have heard people say that they wanted to see, and we, we were able to do that. But there, like I said, the conversation will continue, but it's a great start. And where that ends up, I'm not sure. And that will come from more conversations with police administration, police unions, police officers, because sometimes the union feels one way, but the members feel a different way. But the community as a whole, you know, we heard from how many moms that called in about their interactions with law enforcement with their children. I had dinner with a mom just two nights ago that her son had locked his keys in his car and he was trying to get the keys out with a hanger. And the police saw it and just assumed he was a black kid breaking in and, and the mom just happened to be pulling up and she said, oh my God, what are you doing? And her, well, he's breaking in this car. She said, that's his dad's car in our driveway. He locked his keys in his car. But they just assumed that there was a black kid that was doing wrong. So having all those groups of conversations, stakeholders, because we're all stakeholders in this in this conversation. We're all stakeholders in this conversation. And hoping that people see that we've listened. A, a number of my colleagues have had meetings and conversations with people that we listen and we heard them, but there has to be a balance and it can't be one-sided. We're just 
one group in the conversation gets everything that they want. Mm -hmm. I learned early on that if people are all mad at a bill, then it must be a really good bill. Mm -hmm. so, so I see it as, a, as the first steps in the, as a continued conversation. Why was it so important to pass these bills now, as opposed to waiting until, say, February or March when the legislature comes back for its regular session in 2021? I think it was because if history hasn't taught us anything else, you have to capture the moment. And we're living through a time that maybe a few years ago, if George Floyd had happened, then people would have been in the streets and marching for a day or two. There are still protests going on. There are there's still people that are hurt. And there are still people saying, I elected you. I need you to do something to help change it. And although that incident didn't happen in our state, it could have happened in our state. And we heard that from Assemblywoman Krasner and her passionate floor speech about how she had to explain to her kids why the police officer sh shot a young man in Reno. So it can happen in, in our state. And we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to make sure that the laws in our state protect everyone. And, and sometimes those are hard conversations. And sometimes people, it's hard to admit that there might need to be some changes, but we have to have those conversations. So, so I'm hoping when we leave here, people understand why it needed to happen now. Because if we waited, then there's an emergency situation going on in our streets, whether some people agree with that or not. There are black people that are profiled every day. There are black officers on police departments that feel marginalized. And it may not be a death, but it's killing people inside. There are moms that are afraid to, every time their child walks outside the door. After George Floyd, I did community conversations with our youth because I wanted to hear from them how they felt. If you're in a street protesting, you're lost in a sea of voices. But I brought together elected officials, police, and our youth, just for them to be honest. And there was a kid that said, you know, I was pulled over. He didn't know why he was getting pulled over. Well, his tail light was out. But he has autism, mild autism. But when he gets stressed, he can't communicate. And he said, just the fact that those lights were on, I didn't know if I was gonna be the next one being killed. Our kids shouldn't feel that way. They should not feel that way. So because of that child and every other child out there, this is an emergency situation that we needed to do something to address. And this is the first part of addressing it, so. Well, thank you so much for helping to put this all in perspective. I really appreciate your time on that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, along with my colleague Riley Snyder, who's also based in Reno, and you have just finished reporting on special session number two of 2020. So, you know, how did it end? What were the bills that were introduced? What are the big highlights? Uh, how did it go overall? Yeah, hi, Joey. Um, so the special session ran for six days. It was uh, all policy focused. The one that happened earlier in July was focused almost entirely or entirely on the state's budget crisis. So this was kind of like a big policy wish list for lawmakers to tackle. Some of them were not as interesting members of the public. There was a couple of technical changes. So the biggest two bills of the special session that got the most attention were an elections bill that mandates all mail-in voting for active voters for the 2020 general election. That drew the attention of President Trump and is now the subject of a lawsuit that we're expecting to see play out 
in the coming weeks. I think the previous podcast that we released goes into that in much greater detail. You can listen to you can listen to Michelle and I talk to Wayne Thorley about that from yesterday's podcast, which is like 30 minutes just on just on AB4. Yeah, so true election heads will enjoy that. I want to talk a little bit more about this business liability bill. This was kind of like the last, like the fulcrum that like the special session was resting on. It was a combination of a bunch of different powerful interests, casinos, the culinary union, trialers, progressive groups, hospitals, school districts, kind of like everyone uh, with political power in the state was interested in this bill. To kind of like give this the necessary context, Like what we're talking about when we talk about business liability is basically the ability of someone to sue a place if they contract COVID. This is like kind of an area of law that a lot of people are worried about. Businesses say that they're going to be susceptible to frivolous lawsuits or any kind of lawsuits related to COVID. If like someone goes to a restaurant, goes home and gets COVID, they don't want to get sued um, because they happen to get the coronavirus while getting there. So it is like an interesting legal area. This is happening on the federal level as well with Mitch McConnell. He's made a demand um, for any kind of additional uh, legislation to come out of Congress to include some kind of business liability. So I think the big thing with this bill was, you know, who was included in the bill and who wasn't, who would be held accountable and who would have more protections under the law, you know, what businesses and entities would have those protections and which ones wouldn't benefit. Right. So the bill essentially gives this enhanced liability protection, they're also called like a liability shield, to all businesses, all government agencies, except for schools, and all nonprofits. The only other carve-out in the bill is hospitals and healthcare facilities, like skilled nursing homes, things like that. So those were carved out. There was a lot of talk about those two, a lot of Uh, consternation. The Nevada Hospital Association was extremely upset. They said they were shut out of the process. They ran an ad campaign and put out a video opposing this. But again, like this is all like very technical tort law, like litigation stuff. So like, it's just interesting that like they spent so long tied up in this because this, like at the the end of the day, this is about um, lawsuits and trying to get damages from these businesses if people get COVID while going out or being out in public and getting them on the premises of these businesses. So these protect those businesses from getting sued, basically, if, if someone contracts COVID. But why were the schools and why were hospitals, you know, left out of these protections? So the governor's office has given a couple of different answers on this. During an extremely late night hearing in the Senate, the governor's staff said this bill was a product of conversations with some of the most um, important and powerful business interests in the state. And that's any like kind of thread you unwind from this bill would kind of threaten it because, you know, like labor groups wanted, there's worker protections in this bill that they wanted, but they don't want the liability protections. Businesses like the liability protections, but they want the hospitals in. So it's kind of like this Jenga tower of things. And if you take one bit out, they were concerned it was going to fail. So when the governor's office said that, I think they realized like we actually kind of let the mask slip. We weren't supposed to say that. So a lot of the talk uh, yesterday, the final day of the session dealt with you know, what other kinds of immunity do hospitals have, do school districts have? Does this put them in a worse position? Does this open them up to lawsuits? Like if schools go back in person, if um, say you're visiting the strip and your husband or wife contracts COVID, will you be able to visit them in the hospital or will you be prohibited because you'll have this like risk of liability if you go and you yourself get it while you're at the hospital? So what does this all mean in practice? So what this bill does is that it doesn't give blanket immunity. That just basically means you can't file a lawsuit for any reason, but it enhances the standard from which a lawsuit can be filed. So 
it sets up these kind of like triggers that have to happen in order for a personal injury lawsuit related to someone's death or a personal injury. Like if you're, you know, hurt medically for getting COVID on the premise of a business, a government agency or a nonprofit. So it sets up this phrase called controlling health standards. And there was a lot of talk about what this includes. The ultimate language of the bill is essentially what businesses have to follow in terms of health requirements. So for the state of Nevada, for example, you have to wear a mask. That's a requirement. There's recommendations on things that you can do, but those are not included. It's things that businesses must do. It's federal, state, local, regional policy that deals with health and deals with these controlling health standards. So the businesses have to substantially comply with these health standards. In order to bring a lawsuit, which is kind of like the whole point here is like how easy or how hard is it to bring a lawsuit, you have to prove that the businesses were one, not following the health standards, two, were grossly negligent, which is a, like a higher bar in terms of um, lawsuits. You have to prove that basically they were being like excessively not following the rules, not doing it very well. And you have to um, plead with particularity. So what, what that means, again, this is all very technical legal stuff, but when you bring a case, you have to have examples of like, all right, X, Y, and Z happened in this case, and that's why we think the person was able to contract COVID here, and that's why they were injured, and that's why they deserve damages. So it isn't blanket immunity, but there's like a very like limited, narrow scope in which you could bring a lawsuit in these cases uh, related to getting COVID at, again, a business, any kind of business, any kind of government agency. And when we say that, we mean like both the state of Nevada, but also school districts, any kind of like semi-governmental aid, like the RTC, for example, they're also covered. And then nonprofits, so like credit unions um, were included, any kind of like trade association, stuff like that. So it is like a, a very wide umbrella that they put over all these businesses. Like you said earlier, this bill is really complicated. It goes into a lot of stuff. But part of this bill, too, is, is not just the lawsuits, but it's also worker protection. And I know specifically like in the casinos and stuff, like how they're going to be you know, protecting employees of, of, of places like this. Can you kind of explain and go into detail about what those worker protections are? Yeah, so this bill is a shotgun marriage between these two things because they wanted business liability. When I say that, when I say they, I mean the casinos, business groups, et cetera. And it's a combination of worker protections and health and safety standards for casino employees, which is something that the culinary union really, really wanted, really, really pushed for. It requires the state to put regulations in place to police like health standards requiring daily cleaning of like high touch services, door handles. It gets extremely technical in like what they want them to clean. There are requirements for social distancing, being providing employees with masks and gloves and any other kind of PPE that they might need, free testing, and then it also allows for paid time off for anyone who is awaiting COVID test results or test positive, and they have to be quarantined for 14 days. So that was the big thing culinary was looking for because, you know, if you're working on the strip and you are contracted or you believe you have it and you have to wait for test results, like they wanted to ensure that you're getting paid. You're not feeling that pressure to get back to work, even though you might have this highly infectious disease. And so this bill passed and it was, you know, it didn't pass on party lines. It passed 31 to 10 in the assembly. So it's going into effect and we've got all these other bills that happened throughout the session. One more thing that I wanted to talk about was, the end of the session, the very last thing that happened kind of last night before, before they did sign die was the Republicans in the Senate called for another special session to happen and they would need a two thirds vote. They don't have a two thirds majority. It's probably not going to happen. So can you kind of explain, you know, why they did that? Yes. So 
Nevada has been in a state of emergency since March. This is a term that's set out in law. It existed before the pandemic, but it essentially gives the governor like an enhanced suite of powers and things that he can do to deal with um, any kind of emergency. I think when they wrote this law, they were thinking like, you know, we get invaded or something like this. And it also deals now with the pandemic. So Republicans said, that's fine. We can do that, but because it's indefinite, we want like a solid end date on this. They filed bill drafts requests, so they're going to potentially try to push for something in the 2021 legislature. That would put like a 30-day or 15-day end date on the state of emergency and then require the legislature to come back in and basically approve it and agree that, yes, this is an emergency or no, it's not an emergency. Like you said, they're calling for an additional special session, which is what everyone would love and to see right now. We all want, <laughs> want number three to come. In all seriousness, they do need two-thirds of legislators to sign onto this petition. So it's a voter-approved, it's semi-recent, it's never happened before because usually um, the governor and legislators are kind of on like the same wavelength when it comes to issuing a proclamation for a special session, going in and doing legislative work. I would put, you know, very low odds that this happens. It was just kind of a, I think, uh, a, a tell in terms of what they're hoping to accomplish in 2021. A lot of the things in the, the the bills that were approved the special session are tied to the state of emergency, like the elections bill we kind of mentioned briefly earlier and everything else. They're all like based on this trigger of us being in a state of emergency. So they just want to have more power for the legislature to determine like when does this end? Of course, Democrats, uh, my colleague Michelle Rendell has talked to Nicole Canizaro, who's the head of the state Senate Democrats, and she said, like, we're still in an emergency, guys. Like, it's still a pandemic. So we're not going to end this at any time soon. So I think this is a conversation that they were hoping to start, but we'll probably have to come up in February 2021 when they go back in for the normal session. All right, Riley. Well, thank you for breaking down all of that complicated and very interesting uh, stuff going on. Hopefully you can get some rest. It's been a long six days. It's been a longer, what, six months or a couple months, <laughs> four months. So uh, get some rest and thanks for all your reporting. Cool. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Danielle Monroe Moreno, Megan Messerly, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Next week.